electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. An impressive rebound for stocks or uninspiring? That is the debate right now as a brutal month comes to a close. So where does it leave your money now? We'll debate that with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Liz Young, Steve Weiss, Jim Labenthal, Joe Terranova. Let's check stocks as we always do, wrapping up what has been a brutal month, as you'll notice, and you know it by now for sure. NASDAQ is the big bouncer today. Up nearly two and a half percent, trying to avoid the worst January ever. And at least at the moment, by four or five points or so, it's doing just that. Recapturing 14,000 today. Dow's good for 116, one third of one percent. Ten-year note yield, lots of focus there. It will be for the weeks and months ahead, of course. 178 on the ten-year note yield. Joe Terranova, so where does this leave us now, heading into a new month? Well, I think this is clearly today last trading day of the month, the most obvious rebalance that I've seen in recent memory. Uh, You're seeing all of the sectors in the equities market that have been underperforming year to date, consumer discretionary, communication services, technology, they're leading the market. The other side of that, financials, industrials, energy, underperforming the market. And then you have the hyper growth story coming back once again. So within that hyper growth story, You could look at a Twilio, a CrowdStrike, Palo Alto Networks. Those are names I'd be focused on. But what I would do is this, Scott. I think that the bigger picture of this market is that you posted a low in January, and the market is pattern matching exactly 2016. If you have the chart back in EC, please show what I gave uh, to you guys before the producers. 2016, you had a sell-off, November peak. Market sold off aggressively in January, retest in February, and that was the best outcome because the market was clearly sailing higher from there. So I clearly think what's going on here over the next 10 days is you may get the retest at the bottom from last Monday. You may not, but I think there are names that you're going to go in right now and be able to buy, and you're not going to get hurt, but they're not the names that are rallying today. They're the names where you've got the free cash flow generation prevent present. They're high quality in their nature. And a lot of them are large cap. Remember, Scott, small caps broke through Monday's low on Friday. So I don't see the all clear for small caps. It's large cap. It's quality. It's the big mega cap Mm -hmm. names we know. So, Liz, you know, we enter we're going to enter a new month and, and we're still asking ourselves this question of whether we bottomed last Monday. And, you know, we've had a nice rebound since. And I'm curious to know what you think as to whether this is a sell the rip kind of a market. You've got a nice move in the Nasdaq, as we just showed you. We're, you know, we've had a nice rebound. Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson today says he's uninspired by last week's price action. We would be sellers of rallies, he said. We remain uninspired by the price action at the index level, despite strong earnings prints. We're seeing a classic bear market action, says Mike Wilson. 
of Morgan Stanley. So in essence, he's doubling down on his negativity. What do you think about that? So I think last week's action and the big swings that we saw intraday, that's probably over. That was probably as bad as it gets from an intraday swing standpoint. But I don't think we're done with this volatility. You have to look at What's happened in the NASDAQ year to date? We're only one month in. And if this move holds today, this would be the seventh day of more than a 2% move in the NASDAQ. That is a lot of days with big moves. The VIX above 20 now for two weeks, above 25 for six trading days. I think the VIX stays elevated here. So then the question is, what do you do with your money knowing that rate hikes are probably coming in March and that we're embarking on a rate hike cycle? If you look at the patterns of what happens in the market leading up to rate hikes and then what happens afterwards, generally speaking, cyclicals do well into the hike. And then afterwards, we have choppy markets for about three months. If you can wait six months out, then things start to strengthen up. You see tech come back in, communications come back in, and things stabilize. But you have to have the stomach for it. So I would stay on that value, on that cyclical trade here for the next 45 to 60 days, and then you have to wait it out. I don't think this volatility is over. The Fed has not even moved yet. Weiss, are you a believer in all of this, or, or, or are you as uninspired as Mike Wilson appears to be by the price action in the market last week? Well, I'm inspired to trade it. So if you recall, I'm sure you do. I sent you and Prashant a text on Friday at 10.17 in the morning. Uh, 3.17 my time because I'm in London. And I said, I think the market's going to go green today. And I said, I'm massively long the queues. And I stayed long. And I'm going to sell those into the close today because I agree with Joe. It's a massive rebalance. So the world's not changed. As a matter of fact, I think it's going to be the same pattern, the one that, that Liz mentions, where we're going to be trading it. So it's a trading market. I'm going to keep my core positions, which, by the way, are companies where I believe that they'll continue to generate cash flow, most of them free cash flow in size, and that's where I find value. I also think that you're going to want to own, continue to own, as I do, the large cap growth stocks because they've been defensive and they're going to perform. They're cash rich. So it's going to be a volatile market. It's going to go up and down, but I don't think it's over. Look, you had record multiple expansion from record easy money. You've got to believe that what goes up must come down. So those multiples are going to continue to contract. And days like today and days like Friday only give you opportunity to sell what you regretted not selling the prior week. So, look, I don't think there's any disaster there, but I think it's a trader's market. Joe, I'm sure, is actively trading the futures. I'm with him in trading it, and uh -huh. I think that's where I'm going to be while maintaining my core positions. I guess, Farmer Jim, everything depends on yields, and, and that will remain the story moving forward if you're trying to get a gauge on where stocks are going to go. Goldman's David Costin is doing that, says if, you know, real yields move to zero, you could get 4,000 on the NASDAQ. I just don't feel like there's a lot of conviction to say that the bottom was in or there, there's smooth sailing now, that we overdid it, we're oversold to the downside. That may get you a little bit of a bounce. But I don't find too many believers. Now, maybe we're going to get one in a little while when Adam Parker comes up on the program today, our, our headline guest, Farmer Jim. I went to you. Um, we, you were with us almost every day last week, and I started almost every program off with you because of your call that Monday was, in fact, the bottom. Now you've had a week to digest all that. We're putting in a dismal January. Here we come to a new month. There are a lot of things on the table. How do you see it now? 
So we're 6% higher than we were last Monday. And I'm, I'm perfectly willing to move past the, the moniker of, you know, the farmer Jim Bottom, because I think where we are now is you have to look forward. And what when you bring up yields and when we talk about the Fed, I have to be clear about my position here. I don't think that yields or the Fed are the reason that the market's going to go down. I think those are the reasons why volatility is going to increase. But I strongly believe that you need a catalyst in order to make the market go down. Now, that catalyst could be anything. It could be catalyst. Russia versus Ukraine. It catalyst. could be... Wait, wait, wait. What do you mean? Wait, Scott, I don't get this, it. I, I'm no, 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 no. I'll, I'll come back I'll to you. you. No, no, no. I'll, I'll come back to you. No, I'll come back to you for a second. Because, you know, frankly, when you say there's no catalyst, you're telling me that a new Fed regime, a more hostile Fed, isn't a catalyst enough, that it has to be some exogenous event somewhere or a war it's in, here. in Europe it's now already, to, to, wake, Scott, to wake you up? Scott, we're... Yeah, that is what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. And let me let me let me be clear about this. The bull market is intact. Anybody who's calling for a bear market, I think, is absolutely wrong. And you look at the last time that Russia annexed the Crimea that year. They did it in February of 2014. The S&P was up 13 percent that year and 12 percent on average the next four years. The point being is that's not what moves the markets. Profit cycles are what moves the markets. And this profit cycle is still intact. All the Fed is doing is increasing volatility by itself. It's not going to knock the profit cycle down. And as far as, you know, it not being a catalyst or being a catalyst, we've discussed it for the week. It's time to move on. All right. We've got people out there saying seven hikes this year, 50 basis points in March. I happen to think all of that is ridiculous. And I'm telling you, you need to now look forward at what the next issue is that can knock the market down. It's not just yields in the Fed. You need something else. I don't know, Joe. I, I don't know if Farmer Jim spent too much time in the fields this weekend or what and whatever he was doing there, because um, that sounds a little out there to me, Joe, that, you know, ho-hum, yeah, I, the Fed new regime. They, yeah. they came in all, you know, Powell was all aggressive and hawkish. And Jim says doesn't matter. Not anymore. Yeah, I know. I, I, I I'm with you on on that one, Scott. And Jim, I, I, you know, no, no disrespect, but I wish we'd stop using the words the market, right? Because I think using the words the market is incorrectly going to lead people to make decisions that are going to be wrong. We all have said volatility is here to stay. Scott has defined the Federal Reserve environment. And, and let's face it, there's no clarity with what the Federal Reserve is going to do, especially with where the price of oil is. But let's stop saying the market and let's specifically identify where opportunities might be exist. Because I'll tell you what, with the tape, the way the tape is trading today, I'm sorry, I don't want to give in to the temptation of buying these high PE, hyper growth stocks or, or small cap software that on this rebalance are, are rallying so aggressively. That's not what I want to do. Now, I just told everyone, I think this is 2016. I think you are going to get a retest some point in February. And there's names you could buy. But let's talk about a market of stocks and what exactly we could be buying in that environment. And it speaks to exactly what Steve's talking about, trying to identify companies that are large cap in their nature and have that strength of free cash flow generation. Can I tell you what? You know, I know Kathy Wood has said innovation mm -hmm. is on sale right now. No, Scott, quality is mm -hmm. on sale right now. And I would absolutely be a buyer of that quality. Okay, so Weiss... I'm glad you had a, a, a little bit of a moment here to digest what Farmer Jim had to say. I purposely didn't come to you right after that because I was afraid you'd come in too hot. And I didn't want, the, I didn't want that to overshadow whatever message you, you would have. But let's discuss this. 
Jim essentially says the Fed is no big deal. It's going to cause volatility, if nothing else, despite the fact that there is a, this new regime. They're on the path to raising rates, quantitative tightening, et cetera, et cetera. You can find any number of different descriptions to describe what is a different Federal Reserve today than existed six months ago in terms of what it is doing within the market and what it plans to take out and then the ultimate effect it's going to have on stocks, on valuations, on earnings down the road, et cetera. Weiss, what do you think? You did the absolute right thing, Scott. That's all I'm going to tell you by giving me a minute to, to think about things. <laughs> I've been Look, doing this here's a while. What I'd say. I've been doing this yeah, a while with yeah, you guys. Yeah, we've been, do, we've been doing a while together since day one. Look, here's what I'd say. It's like a stage four pancreatic cancer uh, patient walking into an oncologist, and the doctor says, hey, let me look at that pimple. This is not what's going on. The stocks are, stocks are in a bear market, period. The indices don't reflect it, by stock, but stocks are. Now, they'll bounce here and there, but you've got a massive tightening cycle. And to think that the market's already discounted it before the first hike happens, I think, is, is sort of ridiculous. So, look, you'll get periods of volatility, as we've all said, but there are certain stocks that aren't going to work. And those are the Kathy Wood stocks. Nothing against Kathy Woods, but she's got to recommit because that's what her ETF tells her to do. I went through the docs actually this morning, and she's got very little flexibility mm -hmm. in terms of how much cash she can have and what she can own. So she can't all of a sudden switch. So right. let's ignore what she said. She's got a bias on bias. So I stick to what I'm saying. I think everybody's got a bias, right? Every, everybody, everybody, absolutely. Everybody's got a bias. Everybody talks. Everybody talks their own book. The fact of the matter is, inflows have picked up into the ARC funds, and they're up nearly. 8% today, and she's, you know, become a punching bag in, in some respects. Um, and we're going to see how it all, it all plays out. But, you know, not all investors are giving up on the prospects of Kathy Wood, um, you know, being able to right the ship, so to speak, and that these stocks will still have their day, albeit it, it, may, it may take um, a, a little while. Jim, I'm going to give you a chance. We, we can't just, you know, throw these darts at you and not give you a chance to throw a little bit back or at the very least respond. But I mean, Ed Yardeni thinks not only are you going to have more volatility, he's moved his S&P target now that he had in place for 2022. I, now yeah. he's moved it further into 2023. 5,200 was year end 22. He says, no, nah, it's not going to work out that way um, in large part because of of what the Fed is doing. So make your response here and then let's move. So yeah, I'm, I'm surprised but pleased by the degree of vehemence in the in the arguments back to me. That usually means that I'm right, frankly. But look, I, I can only say right now the backdrop is an aggressive Fed. We know that. All right. And this is the point that I was trying to make last week with when people go to seven rate hikes this year. It's like six minute abs. It's like, come on, fellows. All right. We get the joke. But in order for the market to go down, now the Fed isn't enough. The market knows that. It's the backdrop. It's like a chemical solution that is waiting for a catalyst. The bad news is, Scott, and I would like to make this point, there are plenty of catalysts out there. It's not just Russia, Ukraine. It's upcoming midterm elections. It's a continuing resolution for this government's budget that runs out in three weeks. There's any of a number of catalysts out there. My point is now the Fed has the backdrop for higher volatility in the market, but that's not enough on its own for it to go down. You need something else to precipitate out of solution the conditions that we're in. Mm. OK, I mean, look. You're going to stick to your guns. That, that, that's, that's fine. I mean, that's I guess that's what it's all about. 
Um, let's bring in senior markets commentator Scott, Mike Santoli, who I'm sure has. Yes, go ahead, Jim. <laughs> that was Steve. No, that was Joe. No, it was actually Joe. Right. It was Joe. All right, I'm going to not let anybody. I'm going right. To, I'm going to Santoli. How about that? Because we had wrapped, right? You guys know better than that. Okay. Mike Santoli is with us now. I'm assuming he's listening to the conversation. Yep. Mike, it's nice to see you. Um, and really, the conversation part of it, at least, is to whether, you know, what grade you would give the correction that we just had if, if it was, quote unquote, successful enough in weeding out some of the excess that existed within the market. But you can opine on what Farmer Jim had to say as well about, sure. I mean, it's almost discounting completely this new Fed regime. Well, discounting it or suggesting that the market has largely absorbed it. I think that's one way to, to maybe characterize what's going on. I would grade the correction as saying, you know, it's absolutely passing. It's achieving much of what a correction is supposed to do. It's not the same as saying it's definitively over and last, last Monday was the low at 42.22 in the S&P. Maybe it was. There's actually a lot of things that say at least it should be uh, a decent spot to, uh, to actually, you know, you know, use as a reference point for your potential downside from here tactically. But I think you have the valuation compression everyone's been talking about has uh, gone a fair distance, right? 19 times earnings for the S&P 500. That's not cheap, but the small cap 600 is really cheap at like 13 times. Nobody wants to buy them. I understand that. But on a relative basis, the typical stock out there has taken more punishment uh, than uh, the indexes have. Sentiment got pretty washed out. I don't think there's a way around that. I'm not saying you had massive outflows, but you had retail investor uh, surveys are showing multi-year lows in bullishness. As it's, at the same time, record volumes in uh, defensive put options being acquired. So it does seem as if people have their guard up. And just on the point of whether the Fed was absorbed, you know, the message was absorbed, you know, all the talk from Powell in basically saying we're going to look for flexibility to hike more, not less, and all the streets cycle of talking themselves into ever more hikes have all happened since the S&P hit that low. That was Monday. Right. So, yes, it was a choppy week. Yes, we've had these scares along the way and maybe we're going to get more of them. But all of that talk did not create a new low. And by, final point, Joe was talking 2015, 16. I wrote about that over the weekend as well, because it seems like the logical uh, kind of episode we go through in the first rate hike in the cycle when it seems like badly timed. It always seems inopportune. Even though the, the economy might be ready for it, that Wall Street finds a reason to feel like it could absolutely turn into an immediate mistake. And I think that that's something that you generally uh, have to be aware of, but, but maybe fade. Very different economic conditions otherwise in 2015-16. But I do think that that kind of crowd psychology aspect is there. I mean, Goldman today says five hikes coming this year. I think it was J.P. Morgan on Friday moved up to five. Now, there are others. I think it's Bank of America is at seven, and that's an outlier for the moment. And surely, Mike, seven hikes has not been absorbed by, by the market. I, th I think we can both agree uh, on that. Has five? Seven hikes is in the four? absence of, look, I, f first of all, there isn't an actual 
answer to how many there are going to be in an envelope somewhere, and we're just trying to guess what that answer is. The Fed doesn't have the answer. Mm -hmm. They acknowledge Mm -hmm. they don't have the answer. So it is all about a dynamic process of how's the economy going to respond? Is inflation going to crest and come back? Uh, What does that mean for their intentions to get back up to some kind of a normal rate and maybe just kind of rebuild that cushion in rates and and roll the balance sheet? They're probably going to try to do as much as they can do as financial conditions allow them to do, assuming that we don't have some kind of a spill in the labor market. So I feel I feel as if every one of these predictions is plausible, um, and I don't think that you can say that any particular number is priced in unless you want to look at the Fed funds futures and treat that as some kind of, you know, uh, kind of wisdom of the crowd's prediction, which, you know, history says it really isn't. And it's been leading the market for sure. I mean, all, all of those yeah. have been at contract highs, you know, before the I think in, the investor community at large has kind of gotten there in its own right. Mike, I appreciate yeah. it. Uh, as always, uh, that's Mike Santoli. Let's bring in our headliner now, Adam Parker. He's the founder and CEO of Trivariate Research. Uh, AP, welcome back. Great to see you. You know, it was two weeks ago you said the following, and I noted it that day, and I mentioned it on the program, and I'm going to do it again because it was pre-Fed and pre-correction, where you said, quote, People are really out of their minds if they think the Fed is going to raise four or five times this year and four or five times next year. I don't see how that's going to happen. I'll take the under. Um, You heard Jay Powell speak. You still want to take the under? Oh, yeah, for sure I do. You know, I think the comment Santoli made at the end there, I agree with the Fed fund futures, while ultimately doesn't prove to be what happens, is really the perception the market has in, in, in interest rates and what they're going to be like in the future. And I doubt that rates will uh, change that much. I think uh, people got too hawkish. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of agree with Joe's comments in the end of the day, which is we need stocks to buy and stocks to sell. So we did our year at Outlook, that note you're referencing two weeks ago. We just came out with like seven buy themes, five short themes with the stock ideas. And that's what I've been focusing on with my investors. I don't have an agenda because we write research. We just try to our agenda is to help our clients make money. And I think that's the main focal point, to be honest with you. I did upgrade last Friday technology from underweight to an equal weight. I do feel like um, if I look at historical downturns that, you know, we guessed maybe 80 percent of the way through this one. The only ones that are really worse are COVID or European financial crisis or great financial crisis. I don't think we're in that situation here. Uh, so our view was, OK, let's look at what industries work. If we're 80 percent of the way through the downturn through three months after, let's look through what signals work. And that leads us to the portfolio recommendation. So I, I think it's a pretty good time to stop you know, getting so negative on on particularly the growth universe and start to add some there uh, over time. I'll get to that in a, in a second. But isn't the risk to the upside on on rates? I mean, I almost feel like you're in denial about where we are and what the Fed chair had to say. You got a new Fed regime. I mean, they talked about that. They, they sort of laid the groundwork as well for balance sheet yeah, I guess, reduction. I, I, I mean, I guess, look, doesn't that, doesn't that factor co- into any of the way you're thinking about it? No, sure it does. And, you know, we look a lot at how markets trade statistically significant or not to changes in perceptions of rates and the reality of it, which signals work. But, Scott, remember, you know, there are hockey rinks full of people at all the firms you mentioned who memorize and follow everyone in the Fed and what they do. And they consistently get it wrong about what the Fed's going to do because the Fed doesn't know what they're going to do. My view is the Fed are are the smart ones. They have access to all the information. They're not going to raise rates eight times or seven times in two years unless the economy is awesome. Okay, so let's focus on what matters. What matters is corporate earnings growth. 
That's what Jim said, and I agree with him. If earnings are higher in 2023 than 2022, the market's going to be higher. You can fight that all you want. I wouldn't. I think what happened here is is kind of a what's called a garden variety growth scare fueled by uh, excessive hawkishness. And I, I think ultimately you'll get higher corporate earnings. Now, maybe if we're backing up and being clinical, we'd say, look, the probability 23 earnings are below 22 earnings is probably a little bit higher now than it was. So, you know, that that's that's because the Fed may be a little more aggressive and, and maybe at the time things are slowing and they get it wrong. Maybe that's possible. But I still think your base case is higher corporate earnings in 23 than 22. And that leaves you with lots of things that you could buy to, to outperform and make money. I know, but you, 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 you know, I don't know. We have. I feel like we have part of this conversation every day. I mean, you used to put your CCMs on too and skate around that rink with everybody else, and now that you're no longer look, there, I, I always, it's, it's I always have a longer to, perspective. It, it, no, I have a longer perspective than you, Scott. Look, like last year we came on, we were bullish on equities. We said energy was our number one sector. The market was up 27, energy was up 55, and people gave me a hard time every time. So you got to look. It's, it's your horizon window. Look, the market's down more than I thought it was going to be in January. You have a lot of reasons for that. Big change in perception about uh, rates fueling into a growth scare. Sure. Uh, but I think if I look out with any perspective, I focus on what would make me want to call the top. It's around management arrogance gone awry. It's it's capital spending, hiring, inventory impeding margin progress, fancy new corporate headquarters, all that stuff. I don't see a lot of corporate excess. Mm-hmm. So you're going to try to time these exogenous events. And I look back at my history in the last 20 years. When did plotting any of those things on your computer, I think Jim said the word Crimea, I typed in Cyprus and all these things, banks in Italy, every single time the market went higher because corporate earnings were higher. I don't love, Joe, I don't love the 2015-16 analog. I think there's elements to it are the same, but we didn't have a FANG M then. You know, we didn't have, you know, it was just becoming an acronym then. So I think there's, there's always an imperfect historical analog, and I get things are always a little bit different. But when I focus on corporate earnings, I think they're likely to grow. I think the opportunity of the growth stuff that sold off the most to me is biotech. Did you know that only 15% of biotech companies ever generate positive free cash flow anyway? So this whole terminal value argument, because the rates are rising, kind of doesn't make sense to me anyway. Maybe their cost of capital gets a little higher as they access markets. But meantime, the whole sales pipeline is the same. So I'd probably be picking around there looking for innovation that's on sale today. And the rest of it, I agree with some of the, let the me, group, uh, you know, Weiss, et cetera, on free cash flow. That's where you got to focus. Let me, let me ask you this. Let me just get a little bit more on, on this increased exposure to growth. Um, How selective within that complex do you want to be? Are are you suggesting now's the time to buy some of the ARC type higher valuation stocks because they've been too overdone to the downside? Look, we all know that if we get directionally dovish sentiment, they're going to rip. I'm really not recommending that. I'd say of that, maybe the biotech part I like. We still think you short profitless software, you know, stuff with decelerating revenue growth and you know, negative free cash flow. We pitched Bill.com as a short idea in our year ahead note a couple of weeks ago. You probably saw. To me, it was just a microcosm of decelerating revenue, 27 times forward sales, and, and negative free cash flow. I'd rather long the biotech innovation against that as an example. Most of the other recommendations we have that are growthier are either positive free cash flow, maybe CRM or Microsoft, or you know, stuff where tech where you know maybe the expectations are very low. Like I like Dell a lot here. Uh, where I feel like ne- negative revenue expectations embed in the consensus, but you got Dell on your side as a big shareholder and people are probably too negative. I love UNH and healthcare services that have pricing power. Uh, so there's things you can own. You know, Obviously, we still love energy and materials. Those are still our top two sector recommendations in the market, and we continue to think they're massively dislocated with tremendous upside. 
you've been dead on with that call, um, and, and you deserve props for that. I appreciate the conversation, as always, AP. We'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, always good to see you guys. All right, hope to see you soon. Take care. All right, you be well. That's Adam Parker, Trivariate Research. All right, coming up, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, it's the worst stock in the NASDAQ 100 this month. Steve Weiss owns it, and he's going to be on the hot seat next. Plus, we have committee moves to discuss, and we'll do it when we come back. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. At least five historically black colleges and universities have reportedly received bomb threats this morning. Bethune-Cookman University in Daytona Beach, Florida, locked down this morning after receiving a threat. Earlier this month, at least eight historically black colleges reported threats in a single day. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson apologizing for attending parties during COVID lockdowns. He says that his government will make change and can still be trusted. Firstly, I want to say sorry. And I'm sorry for the things we simply didn't get right, and also sorry for the way that this matter has been handled. It isn't enough to say sorry. This is a moment when we must look at ourselves in the mirror, and we must learn. Meantime, opposition Labour Party leader Keir Starmer slamming Johnson for ignoring COVID rules and not showing more regret before today. By routinely breaking the rules he set, the Prime Minister took us all for fools. He held people sacrificing contempt. He showed himself unfit for office. You are now up to date. Scott, I'll send it back to you. All right. All right. Some spicy stuff. All right. Rahel, thank you, Rahel Solomon. All right. Let's talk about Moderna. Down 35% since the start of the year. It's on pace for its worst month ever. It is the worst performing stock this month out of the NASDAQ 100. Steve Weiss, I need to know what you are doing with this stock today and how you are positioned. And I know that our viewers want to know as well. Sure. So I actually bought a little more this morning on the news. But yeah, I've been very clear last week when Brendan Togton and I were talking about it. 
I tweeted out that that was the first day that I wasn't hedged in many, many months. And I've said repeatedly on air, and it's in my disclosures, that I've been selling calls aggressively and buying puts. And so that's what you do with biotech stocks that are event-driven. During the lulls, it's open season for the shorts, and it gets heavily shorted by hedge funds who, you know, push whatever story they want to push. But right now, and since Brynn and I discussed it last week, uh, I have no protection on it. So I'm straight long. The fundamentals have not changed. If anything, the fundamentals have gotten a lot better. It's not just Moderna. Biotech was the worst performing index last year, I believe. BioNTech was down a similar amount. Novavax was down more. Pick one. Some have completely blown up. That's what happens in biotech, which is why you have to hedge your positions. And that's what I did. But the pipeline's grown over last year from 23 to over 40. They had $15 billion in cash. They've already sold, sold, booked, although it doesn't show up until they deliver, $18.5 billion in vaccines for 2022 with options that governments and institutions have taken another $3.5 billion. So this is so much more than a COVID company, as I continue to say. But like any other stock, they're event-driven. Some decline in between earnings. Some decline between results and trials. So my fundamental view hasn't changed. I recommend that's what everybody does, as I've said repeatedly. So that's my thought, Moderna. Okay. I, okay. Um, good stuff. I really appreciate you going into so much detail sure. uh, for us and our, and our viewers, um, Steve Weiss. Okay. Liz Young, um, that plays into a biotech conversation of whether we should be bullish or not the space, as Adam Parker told us before the break, that we should be, albeit there may be some risk in certain stocks. What do you think? Well, let's take healthcare as a sector as a whole, trading about middle of the pack performance wise year to date. I think healthcare is a great place to hide out during rate volatility. And then you break it down even further, look at things like biotech and pharma and know that they're a little bit more growthy in the healthcare sector, so they're going to see more volatility as we have rate news. But then you've got healthcare equipment and services that kind of balances that out. I think healthcare is a great place to be here, and I think it's a great place to be for the long term. I used it as my final trade last time I was on. Okay. Uh, Joe, a few things to discuss with you. Uh, you were stopped out sure. of interactive brokers at 65 bucks. Lamb Research at 554. This is late last week. And Lamb, along with Teradyne, were absolute disasters last week. The money that came from those investments went in to Goldman Sachs, which is a new position. Take me through that. Okay. So I had owned Lamb Research since March of 2021. As you said, terrible report. I owned interactive brokers for a couple of months. It has done nothing but deteriorate. And I think the retail participation after the month of January is only going to decelerate further. So how to get out of both of them. What I wanted to do was go into a financial institution. And I went back and looked at Goldman Sachs. I know Jimmy's going to be happy about this. I sold Goldman Sachs at around 355 post earnings, picked it up last week, a little bit lower. It's a company that I know. It's a, it's a company that when I survey all the capital market financial institutions that I have available to me, it still scores the highest. So that's why I went back into it, had cash available to do it. And on the other side of that, Scott Lamb Research, I wanted to be in semis. 
And I know Lisa Sue, her guidance is generally something is very strong. I sold Lamb Research AMD. early January at 128. Uh, AMD, I'm sorry. Apologize. Sold AMD at 128 early in January, able to pick it up below 105. I want exposure in the semi-space still, even though I'm out of Lamb Research. No problem buying it there. I think these are the type of opportunities you want to look at in the market. Okay. Still ahead, we'll tell you the ETFs you need to watch today. Plus, Joe was just talking about some semis. They're higher today. They're still on track for their worst month since 2019. We'll give you the trades and a new stock buy that is next on The Half. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. After being ignored by investors for many years, dividends are hot again. Why? Let's talk with Simeon Hyman. He's the global investment strategist at ProShares, who runs the ProShares S&P 500 Dividend Aristocrats ETF. That holds the S&P 500 stocks that have increased dividend payments annually for at least 25 years. Simeon, I reported Friday that we're seeing record payouts for dividends this quarter from the S&P 500. Big heights from companies like Halliburton, Lennar, Wells Fargo. Why are dividends a hot topic right now in the investment community? So first, I'll, I'll take Oz with your first comment, because we've seen consistent flows into Noble, which is about $10 billion, the S&P 500 dividend aristocrat fund, consistently over the years. And that, I think, is the key here, not just to focus on the folks who maybe have a cyclical opportunity to do an unusually large dividend increase, but the consistent ability to do so. So these aristocrats, as an example, at the depths of the pandemic, grew their dividends 14 percent in 2020, 10 percent last year. That consistency and quality is key. But to your point, timely, absolutely. It's a very important hedge against inflation, growing those dividends consistently and in excess of even elevated levels of inflation are really important. And finally, dividends are such a powerful signal. Nobody wants to cut a dividend. If you increase your dividend, that's management telling you they have some confidence going forward. 
Yeah, and with lower expected returns, of course, a 2% dividend yield can make a big difference in your total return. Let me just change the subject a little bit. We last had you on in October when you launched the very first Bitcoin futures ETF, B-I-T-O. That was quite an event. Bitcoin prices went up going into that launch, but essentially they've been moving down since then. How is the Bitcoin futures ETF trading? How well is it tracking Bitcoin? You know, I think that's one of the most powerful stories here. We've seen continuous inflows even during this downturn in Bitcoin prices. So that in and of itself is an important comment on the staying power uh, of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. So that's really important. We're seeing very good tracking to underlying spot Bitcoin. The fund is doing exactly what it's supposed to do, and it trades very, very well. In fact, Bitcoin volumes, the, the futures market that Bitcoin follows is actually trading substantially more volume than the largest U.S. Bitcoin exchange. So there's a lot of there's a lot of volume. There's a lot of liquidity. There's a lot of trading in the ETF uh, and very good tracking the spot. All right. Now we're going to have much more on why dividends matter in 2022 coming up on ETF Edge. Simeon will be joined by Todd Rosenbluth, head of ETF and mutual fund research at CFRA, who will also help us sort through which dividend ETFs you should own in 2022. Plus, Dan Egan, he's the managing director of behavioral finance and investment at Betterman. He'll be talking about the recent collapse of the meme stocks and what he is advising Betterman investors to do. ETF Edge at CNBC.com, 1 p.m. Eastern time. Halftime back right after this. Hey, Joe Terranova uh, sent us a note saying that uh, after the bell today, he is going to be buying a stock and he wanted to tell you all about it. And we're looking at it on the screen. Joe, tell us about Nike. What uh, piqued your interest here? Well, Nike is a name that for the last couple of years I've known well. It's a name that I've known. And listen, the value of this stock of, of this 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 show, really, Scott, is the authenticity that we all bring to it. Uh, last summer, I was obliterated. I sold Nike at one twenty five. Literally the day before, it, it had that dramatic spike up higher. So I, I sat out on the sidelines, but now the market is giving me the opportunity to buy quality. It's a company that trades at a reasonable valuation. I believe we are going to ultimately move, be moving to an endemic environment. That bodes well for reopening uh, Vietnam, which is manufacturing a lot of Nike products. And let's remember in the last quarter, China was underperforming, clearly. And you're going to see a revival of the growth for China and the revenue contribution as we move forward in coming quarters, certainly with easier policy uh, on the monetary side from the Chinese. So overall, I'm going back into the name. Okay, I took my criticism uh, for what I did last year. I accept it. But this is the perfect spot to get back in the stock where it is. I'm going to buy it on the close. They'll buy it on the close. It's uh, 18 percent. Off of its high, it's down 12% this year. And, Joe, I'm looking at a one year of it on, on CNBC.com, and it's, okay, over a year it's up like 10 bucks. I mean, it's not that far from uh, sort of a flat-looking move from a year ago to, till now. Well, it's, it's fallen off, as you just defined. Uh, it's fallen off significantly. Mm -hmm. um, so it allows me to take advantage of a name that I know, and I suggest to all the viewers right now – with markets trading with this volatility, focus on the stocks that you know well. And those are the stocks that you want to be positioning in or building positions further or establishing positions. 
Go with what you know. Looking at like 177-ish, look like the high uh, later in the year, around November or so, uh, to where, as we said, it's, it's come down from here. So we'll keep our eyes on that again. Joe Terranova telling us right now that he is going to buy Nike after the, the close today. There's a look at the stock. We're back with more trades right after this. Okay, we have another new buy during the show. Steve Weiss bought Netflix up 10% today. Weiss, you haven't owned this for a really long time. Why now? Yeah, that's true. Uh, I, I actually bought this morning on Reed Hastings buying some stock and uh, paid up, I guess, 20-something on it. Look, the stock's down for over 600. Truth is, I should have bought it when, when Joe bought it, when they, when they missed the earnings, uh, because he's had a good feel for the stock. But here's what I'd say. Look, Reed Hastings buying 20 million more means nothing with all that he owns. But it does show some confidence. More than that, I think it draws other people into the stock. Earnings are now out of the way. They seem to report, as long as I've been following the stock, one batter quarter, poor guidance. And the quarter is actually good. Poor guidance. And then next quarter, everything's well again. So I've been looking for an opportunity to buy it. Far from catching the bottom. But I like it here. And I think it's a good trade higher. And it goes with my theme, large cap growth stocks. Not the cheapest one I own, but not most expensive, given where they position. And one more thing, Scott, as, and we mm-hmm. saw some news today, as subscribers go on to the Disney app for free and go on the Apple app for free, and as the Amazon app has atrophied, the one that survives is Netflix. So they, you'll have viewers come there. You'll have subscribers at higher rates now. So I think the stock's got some legs going to be a very big week for mega cap tech uh after last week with you know netflix and 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 apple and microsoft and alphabet tomorrow and meta on wednesday and amazon on thursday uh we're really going to get a report card on on those companies and and growth in general mega cap growth at least uh, uh by the end of this week final trades after this quick break I wanted to get another comment on this Netflix new buy from, from Steve Weiss. You see the, the stock there, 423. Steve Weiss saying that he bought it this morning, and I'm reminded that Joe Terranova sold it back in November at 651. So a long distance from where we are now, Joe. But what do you make of Steve Weiss looking for some value opportunity down here? And we are reminded as well uh, that Bill Ackman recently did the same thing in Netflix. Well, I, th- I think the objective for Bill and for Steve are totally different. You know, Bill is going to be in this for, for many, many years, and he's going to need a much better guidance outlook uh, from Reed Hastings and the team at Netflix. For Steve, for a trade, I think there's maybe 10% upside, and I'm just right now studying my momentum factors that I'm looking at. Uh, but from a momentum perspective, you really had to capture this stock below 400. Uh, I see limited upside. I can't see it getting above 475. Mm. Weiss, you, you want to make a quick comment on that? <laughs> Your mouth to God's ears. Let it go to 475. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, you, he did, he did speak he of say the, that. Uh, maybe, maybe the, yeah, of course Thanks, he said Jim. that. Of course. Hey, is it Steve, <laughs> give me a final real quick if you could. On and the NXPI report tonight on same business. They report Monday. Yeah, NXPI, Jimmy, you own that. Yep, after the bell tonight. 
I think that's going to be a great story. That's a long-term investment. But my final trade for this week is Qualcomm. you got earnings coming up Wednesday. This is the time to get in. How about you, Joe? Any dip in commodities, buy it. John Deere, it's a name I own. It's a way to uh, play the agriculture trade. All right. Finally, Liz Young. I would buy biotech here. If you want innovation and you want growth potential, but you're scared off by this tech volatility, biotech is a great place to be. All right. Final trading day of uh, what's been a dismal month uh, for stocks. NASDAQ's trying to avoid its worth January ever, and uh, at least at the moment, it's above the level to do that. 149098 level to watch. That does it for us. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.